Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. On this Friday night, we take a trip back in time to 1974 when a nut, Mr. Peanut to be exact, ran for mayor of Vancouver. The whole thing was actually performance art. We speak to the artist, Vincent Prasoff, Mr. Peanut himself, and the director of a new documentary about the campaign called Peanut for Mayor. The 2023 World University Rankings are out and they show the geopolitics of knowledge is shifting. And the shift is speeding up with North American and European dominance continuing to decline. What will it mean for countries such as Canada's ability to attract the best and the brightest from around the world? And we find out more about what's fueling protests in Iran and just how far the regime will go to stop them. But first, nearly 10 years after the world began to understand the horrific ordeal that drove a BC team to take her own life, the man accused of tormenting Amanda Todd over several years was today sentenced to 13 years in jail. We speak to Amanda's mom, Carol, about her long fight for justice and her reaction to the sentence. You know, we often talk about how the justice system fails people, how it doesn't work, how people aren't held to account. Well, today was not one of those days. Today was one of those days where you can rejoice and celebrate the very hard work of law enforcement, the very hard work of prosecutors, the determination of family to see justice finally done. Nearly 10 years after the world began to understand the horrific ordeal that drove a BC teen to take her own life, the man accused of tormenting Amanda Todd over several years was today sentenced to 13 years in jail. And handing down her sentence to 44-year-old Dutch citizen Eamon Coban, BC Supreme Court Judge Martha Devlin said, ruining Amanda's life was Mr. Coban's expressly stated goal and was, sadly, one that he achieved. You'll remember that just weeks before her death, Todd created a YouTube video where she silently held up cue cards documenting the torment and the impact it had on her life. The video has been seen nearly 15 million times now. During the nearly two-month trial, the court heard that Coban used nearly two dozen online accounts on four platforms to mount what prosecutors called a persistent campaign of sextortion against the teen from ages 12 to age 15. Prosecutors had asked for a 12-year prison term. They thought that would probably be about as best as they could do to be served at the conclusion of a nearly 11-year Dutch sentence. Coban is already serving for similar crimes against 33, 33 other young victims. Coban's lawyers asked for a six-year sentence reduced to two to take into account the 11 years he's already serving. In the end, the judge imposed an even harsher sentence than the one the prosecution had sought, saying Coban enjoyed his victims escalating distress and, quote, there is nothing before me to show he has any insight into his offending behavior. Justice said, while Amanda's not here today, I have heard her words. Here's Amanda's father, Norm Todd, outside the courtroom soon after. I was hoping and praying we got a high sentence, and we did, but our expectations were lower, so... Everybody pulled together and we got through to the judge and set a really high presence out there, which is really nice. I'm ha- really happy about that. It has been a day that Amanda's mom, Carol Todd, had long hoped for, but perhaps thought she might never see. But she was in that courtroom today and Carol, who is also the founder of the Amanda Todd Foundation, joins me now. Carol, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Ben. Uh, Walking in today, I know I was following you on social media. I know you were counting the hours down um, to the sentencing. What was your hope going in this morning? How were you feeling going in? I was going in feeling really scared, really anxious, not knowing what, um, after all the closing submissions and the hearing statements, what um, the the justice would, would do in, in the end. And yesterday when defense, um, this week, defense yes. wanted six and want, then brought it down to two. Um, it was like, oh, no, really? That, that, I just shook my head, right? Which then got me more anxious and more scared. So uh, I'm the kind of person that I hope for the best, um, prepare for the worst. But today we got the best. Yeah, your reaction because I was watching um, people sort of share what the justice was saying as she laid out what she was going to hand down. And as she made the case for this this 13-year sentence, she uh, she really did touch on so many of the points that even you and I had talked about over time. Uh, what was your reaction mm-hmm. when, when she finally read out the verdict? Or not the verdict, but the sentence. But the sentence, it, I was 
like I was writing my notes and, and, uh, and when she said, you know, 13 years, when she was saying how many years for each charge, I had to actually look over to my son and say, did she really say that? Right. Um, I, I couldn't quite believe it after, after all this, but um, a 13 year sentence and it being so precedent setting in, in case law now, I know that Amanda would be so happy if, if I, I'm hoping that she can see us from wherever she is um, and that she knows that we worked really hard to make this come about and to bring justice to her name. Yeah, I mean, I, I was I was again watching as you marked ten years um, since Amanda's death earlier mm-hmm. this week, and and how hard that must be, um, but also just how how it all came together this week that there was justice. There feels like there was justice. Oh, it definitely feels it was justice, and it's ironic because we were supposed to have the sentencing week three weeks ago, um, and there was a a COVID. Um, diagnosis or whatever um and so it was postponed again and ironically the date that it happened was the day after amanda's 10th year um anniversary of her death date and so it does this it it all all the angels and all the everything came together um and did i i i often get asked do you feel amanda's presence well uh, a short little story is that when I was driving to court on Tuesday morning, I mean, and you know that snowflakes are a part of Amanda's legacy. Um, mm-hmm. She was quite, she loved the snowflakes. And there was a car that drove up to me, next parked next to me at a stoplight, and it had a snowflake decal on, on the window. And, and to me, that was a sign that she was there pushing us on, urging us on, um, giving us luck, and it worked. <laughs> It's, yeah. Did you honestly ever think this day would come back when, I mean, in, in, the, in the darkest times of, of, the, of after this happened, uh, we didn't know what had happened. We didn't know who was responsible. Did you ever think that the day would come when you would stand in a courtroom and watch someone be sentenced no. and sentenced severely for it? No, I honestly didn't. Because when Amanda died, it was um, the investigation was about bullying and cyberbullying and what was happening with her peers and then in in you know 2014 we found out someone had been arrested for her exploitation um and and that was a complete surprise because i thought that part of it had already been put to rest right um and then we progressed into uh, a trial for amanda separate of the ones in the netherlands and there were delays and, you know, investigation. The trial in the, in the Netherlands had to be completed. And then Mr. Coban appealed three times. And, and so I thought it would never come. And, and there were many, um, even, even in law enforcement, that thought this isn't going to happen, right? There's going to be something that's going to hold it up. And then, uh, then to find out, you know, he was... <laughs> Mr. Coban actually canceled his third appeal because he wanted to come to Canada to have his name cleared and be acquitted. Ironic now that as we stand here today, he just got sentenced to 13 years. Well, that, that didn't come true for him, right? Um, but yeah, there were times when I didn't think that this would ever come to fruition. I noticed the justice today, Justice Devlin, really went out of her way to acknowledge um, what you had to say, what the family had to say. Mm-hmm. The victim impact it, yeah. statements was that was that did that bring you any solace to hear that acknowledged from the bench? Well, it, it made me feel really good that she listened, right? And, and that's the fear of of anything is that someone's not listening to you. But um, I really felt that she listened to Amanda's dad's impact statement, to my son's impact statement, to mine, um, because those words were raw. Those words were real, and that's that's how we feel. Um, maybe we don't express them out in the public in such a way, but it, it's the heart and soul of, of what's happened. And, and today, uh, the justice, you know, said that the family is also victims of this crime too, and it's so true. And no remorse from him, and not even a hint of it. 
No, not at all. Um, very, very, he's got a swagger when he walks in. There's been many times in court where he just, you know, looked at me eyeball to eyeball. Um, really? I, I don't know if, if he still feels that he's innocent or if he'll appeal. I believe he has 30 days to appeal now. Um, we'll see what happens, but uh, quite insolent, quite arrogant. And I knew that. I knew that because I had gone to Amsterdam to see the Dutch trial back in 2017, and I, I saw those traits in him back then, right? So um, it, I'm so glad that the, the justice saw through all of that because she mentioned it in her, her statements today um, about lack of remorse, lack of wanting to rehabilitate, um, that, that lack of social interaction, um, in in the Dutch prison when he was incarcerated there, and then here in in Canada where he's you know imprisoned right now, just keeping by himself. So there's no desire to um, want to be better, so that he when he gets out that he can be in that general population. So I'm I'm so glad and just I you know when you're speechless, I'm kind yes. of I'm kind of speechless. <laughs> Which is a great thing. Yeah. Obviously. You know, I'm, 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 yeah. I think many people were not concerned, but even as this trial began, I think people who've spoken to you were always worried that this would end in somehow in disappointment for you. So it's been. It didn't. And, and you know what? The other part of it is we, they sentenced Aiden Caban to the highest that we've seen, but it also set precedence in case law now for any future cases. Not that we want to see any future trials related to these um, these situations, but it sets a higher bar now. And that's something that I know Amanda would be really happy to hear um, because it's it going out. Now we'll hear um, lawyers and prosecutors talk about this, like Amanda's case being given 13 years. And, and when you have to break it down into the different charges, right? Extortion was um, 10 years. And so this is, this is precedent setting for our country and for the safety of um, families and kids. Uh, Carol, you've often spoke about the legacy and how you want to preserve Amanda's legacy by making sure that other children are better protected. And of course, through the uh, Amanda Todd Legacy Society, you've been doing that work. That, I imagine, will continue now, regardless of this verdict. Yes, it will. Um, it, it may be a little harder due to the fact that the trial... Is, is done, um, but I will persevere because I think Amanda's story is one of those, as Amanda said, never ending. Um, and we know that by just looking at our Google alerts under um, online safety and exploitation that a lot more work has to be done. Um, and you need a starting point. And, and real stories are oftentimes the starting points for conversations. Right. I don't want anyone to be scared of, of hearing Amanda's story. Um, I want them to learn from it and not have to go through what anyone in our family has gone through. Um, I'm all about prevention. The legacy is all about prevention. And myself as an educator, um, one of my one of my portfolios is online safety. And so it's really important to me that we we continue to push the story out and have those deep, scary conversations that are needed. Yeah, I know that even as part of your work, you've reached out to other parents who suffer through similar tragedies more recently. We know that it's on on the increase, sadly, uh, in Canada these days. I know you continue to talk to parents who are going through the same uh, experiences that you did, the same awful experiences that you had, just to try to offer them some kind of solace and guidance. I have, and I've connected. There was a, a story that came out of, um, I think, Manitoba, where mm-hmm. a a teenage boy was a victim of sex extortion, and he sadly died by suicide also. And so I've connected to the mom, and we've had some deep conversations, right? Um, of course, it brings me back to um, year one of losing Amanda, and, and that's where these parents are, but... Um, I'm hoping that, you know, by sharing my experiences, it can help them through what they're going through. And I've also 
met and talked to parents of young people who have fallen victim to sextortion across in different countries, right? Um, they reach out. Somehow we all find each other, and, and sadly we're bound by, by the same book. Um, and it, it's just something that, that's increasing, which is why it's important that we continue to talk to our young people and our kids about who, what they're doing on the Internet, who they might meet, who they might talk to, um, what's appropriate to send and what's appropriate information to share or not to share. Um, it's something that we just can't let go. Yes, your kids will roll their eyes and say they know, but you know what? I, I talked to Amanda till it was like the cows come home, um, yet she still did what she was doing and ultimately look at the uh, the the tragic end to that story. So you can't give up. You can't you can't stop, right? We, we love our kids. We love them forever. We want them safe. And so you just have to keep having those conversations in some way, shape, or form. And today, I imagine for all of you, all the people that you've spoken to today must feel like a victory. It must feel like you can exhale. I can exhale until the next chapter is open. Um, we still have to go through... Like we know the sentencing was today, but I'm interested in knowing about the conversion in in the Netherlands, what's gonna happen mm-hmm. to Mr. Coban in, in that respect. So I'll be keeping my ears to the ground to find out. Um I am Amanda's mama bear and I will not let this one go. We've gone through so much already. Um I just wanna make sure that there's justice the justice continues and because that justice that continues is justice for everyone, right? So um, we will persevere. Carol Todd, I know it's been an emotional day. I know you've done a lot of talking. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me tonight, as always. And uh, and I wish you the best. Can I say one last thing then? Sure. 30 seconds we say, have. Yeah. I want to say thank you to all the media who have mm-hmm. followed Amanda's story, who have supported Amanda's story, who keep talking about it, writing about it. Um, conversations like you and I are having because it really helps to bring the issues up to the surface so that your listeners and parents out there understand and know more. Carol, thank you for sharing your story as well. It's much appreciated. Thanks, Ben. You know, voters across BC head to the polls tomorrow to vote in municipal elections. Um, There are many interesting candidates, many interesting plot lines, Many major issues up for debate. It will all pale, perhaps, a little bit in comparison to the peanut who ran for mayor back in 1974. Here's what happened. Uh, his name was Mr. Peanut, as you can imagine. He wore that costume. You can picture it. It was the essentially the planter's mascot. Um, never said a word throughout the campaign, which for some politicians is probably a great move. I wonder if they could try that. His campaign manager did all the talking and took it quite seriously. Mr. Peanut instead would tap dance. To that song, mostly, uh, Peanuts from Heaven. And he turned an otherwise mundane campaign where incumbent Art Phillips faced no real challenge. Everyone knew he was going to win. Well, the nut stole the show. Since he can't talk through his shell, Mr. Peanut is flanked by a spokesman who sets forth the Peanut Party platform, which, despite the levity of the campaign, sets forth some disarmingly logical ideas, like hiring no more city employees until the population grows. Mr. Peanut is really Vincent Trassoff, and he lives with a group of Vancouver artists who make up his army of boosters. They're having fun, but they don't consider the campaign a joke. The word is that Mr. Peanut is going to pick up a few votes, especially from people fed up with partisan politics. Whatever the reason, this campaign has given the recently humorless game of politics a sense of humor. <laughs> He's gorgeous. <laughs> How do you think of Mr. Peanut? Oh, I think he's neat. <laughs> Something different anyway. Unique, different. You think you'd vote for him? Hell yes. <laughs> I'm just wondering how it's going to say, is he nuts? <laughs> 48 years ago, it feels like absolutely nothing has changed. He wound up with 4% of the vote, believe it or not. Uh, 2,685 votes in total. Now, the man on the ballot, it had to be not Mr. Peanut. It had to be the man beneath the shell, so to speak, Vincent Trassoff. So with this great story in mind, 
we tracked down Vincent Trasoff. He's in Germany, uh, where he is putting on a show. He is, of course, still an artist. This whole thing was an art project, believe it or not. And we've also um, caught up with the co-director of a new documentary called Peanut for Mayor, Andrew Muir. And they both joined me now to talk more about that famous campaign 48 years ago. Thank you both for your time tonight. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So, Vincent, it must be interesting to see this story of this time uh, resurface. And tell me a bit about the inspiration for Mr. Peanut. It, uh, it, seeing the old footage now, it, it looks like it was, uh, it was an idea worth exploring at the time. It was a, a performance I did for five years as a, a visual artist. And uh, most of the time, we, a group of us, uh, originating in Vancouver at Western Front, traveled to New York, to Toronto, Los Angeles, Victoria, and Vancouver doing art city performances. That is, we would just walk on the streets of, of the city, a group of us, doing different things. Mr. Peanut would tap dance, etc., etc. And it, it was a, a kind of a photo op where we would get people in the picture, little passers-by, the, the, the citizens. So it was one of my favorite uh, pastimes was, was just going, is today going for walks. So then I went for walks in the peanut costume. In the peanut costume. What was the inspiration then to run for mayor? The idea originated with John Mitchell, who was a friend and fellow artist. He originated the idea of me running for mayor of Vancouver in the November election, 74. He, John was a, a sculptor, so he thought of uh, Mr. Peanut like the pyramids of Egypt or the uh, New York Statue of Liberty. And he was also a, a, a so, social sculptor in the sense of uh, Joseph Boyce, uh, the, the uh, people as, as, a, as sculptures. Right. Um, Andrew, this, how did you land on this project? Because it is a fascinating one. Even just watching the old YouTube videos of some of the news reports, it's really interesting. Uh, how did you land on it and decide to make a documentary about it? I had no idea about the project until I spoke with Grant Arnold, who's the curator at the Vancouver Art Gallery, and he told me about it. And I just saw the footage, the archival footage on, on YouTube of all of the news coverage. And I just thought to myself, how do I not know about this? I've lived in Vancouver my whole life. And apparently anyone who was around in 1974 does remember Mr. Peanut running for mayor, but... I'm only 39, so I wasn't there. And so I just thought the world should know about this. What, um, and, and so you, there's a lot of footage out there, but uh, how did you try to tell the story? What, what, uh, what was the, the narrative arc of, of, the, of the doc itself? Well, we managed to interview most of the artists who were involved in the project. And there were quite a few, actually. There was a lot of people who sort of spontaneously contributed to the various performances that took place. So the, the, the film is told by the people who were involved in the original campaign. It's all told by them. And it really just tells the story of the election, just uh, the campaign, you know, how they started it, why they did it, the result of the election, and ultimately uh, what the outcome of the project was as an art project. Yeah. Uh, Vincent, I mean, to put it in its time, and it was certainly, a, for anyone who mistakes this as being purely political, this was performance art. It was punk rock, just slightly before punk rock became a commonly known term. That's right. Uh, yeah, our, one of our slogans during the campaign was, art was politics in the last decade. Uh, uh, excuse me. Um, life was politics in the last decade. Life will be art in the next decade and yeah and we had our pl platform the, the letters peanut p for performance e for elegance a for art and for nonsense u for uniqueness and t for talent and that we had luck because that campaign there were no serious issues so we were able to kind of uh, like 
anarchists slip in and and take take the stage. And it I is, got uh, I was most popular with with the media. So whenever it came to a, a story about the Vancouver election, it was about more or less about Mr. Peanut and how the other candidates reacted to Mr. Uh, as a member of the media, I must say we are we, we, for a long time. We are we are always thrilled by something shiny, new, and different. And That's certainly, right. Mr. Peanut Peanut was that. Um, I mean, to take us back to '74, though, this was after this was during Watergate, or or at the time, there was a lot of cynicism out there. Did you feel like there was something positive about what mm-hmm. you were doing as well? Oh, sure. Well, uh, and look at it today. I mean, uh, the, the times we're living today. I mean, I don't think we we could start to think about it back then uh, about these these times. But I don't think I would have been able to have done something like this in a in the states, for instance, where it was like nasty politics with Watergate. Uh, Canada is a much gentler society, and we were able to kind of play. Yeah, I mean, Andrew, I mean, looking at the footage, what's most surprising, and not surprising, but what's most perhaps inspirational, is that in the middle of what would be these very straightforward municipal politic gatherings, debates, TV show appearances, and so on, there is a man dressed as a peanut. <laughs> taking part. I mean, it was in many ways. It's 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 surreal to see and 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 great in some ways too. Yeah, the optics of it are really really fascinating. You know, because as you point out, there's these sort of officials doing their official business, just city councilors, and then yeah, right in the middle of it, you have this peanut, which is in many ways absurd, and he is a legitimate campaign, and so he has to be taken seriously. The debate moderators. All of the people who are covering the campaign, they have to take Mr. Peanut seriously. And so he's on the same level as them. And I think that was how the project attained its effect. And it was one that was uh, noticed uh, for people who thought maybe just, I mean, from the many people who may not have heard of it because they were born after the fact or lived far away. I mean, I gather this was something that received a lot of attention outside of Vancouver. It did get a lot of attention, yeah, and uh, it's easy to see why. I mean, the the election itself was was quite dull. It was quite boring. You know, Art Phillips, the incumbent mayor, was was a shoe in, and who who wouldn't be interested in this uh, bizarre peanut character tap dancing and handing out peanuts and making, as one councillor put it, a mockery of the election process. Artist Vincent Trasoff is with us this half hour, as is documentary maker Andrew Muir. Um, they are the first of all the originator of the Mr. Peanut for Mayor campaign back in 1974. Vincent Trasoff, a performance artist, was in fact the man inside the shell. And Andrew Muir has just made a new short documentary called Peanut for Mayor, which looks back at that time. Uh, Vincent, you actually managed to get, I mean, you didn't say a word through the whole campaign. You just tap danced. Were you always a tap dancer? I I picked up tap dancing. It's a bit easier in the uh, Mr. Peanut costume to is it to fake to fake it <laughs> of course yes but i was sh- i was uh, showed somebody the other day the news item and this woman was probably just a, a baby when this happened she responded oh you did a lot of ta- dancing in 1974 <laughs> so yes uh, we my most of my my uh, I, I did it a 15 second tap dance that was my uh statement yeah and of course of course john mitchell as spokesperson took took the campaign very seriously uh he was he was interested in reaching out to the people to give the people a little uh get on with it guys here's here's a, a legitimate candidate uh, you you've got this strength to to uh, sweep him to power. So, and ideas like uh, you know free umbre- umbrellas at the public library to yeah alone. and rubber and rubber boots and rubber <laughs> boots. What a good idea! And 
uh, naming uh, locations in the city after some of our projects, like the island of 1984, et cetera, et cetera. Interesting. And, and you managed to get a fair number of votes, didn't you? I mean, it, it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a close race. It four, never was supposed to be, but, but four percent, four percent is pretty, impre- pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Andrew, I mean, this, this was also noticed in art circles outside of just the usual media attention to something novel. There were, this was also noticed by the people who were meant to notice it, which were other artists uh, out there. Yeah, it was quite a trailblazing project in this sort of era of performance art, conceptual art, where ideas about what art was were really changing, you know, in the seventies. And I think the biggest names that are associated with the campaign would be the writer William S. Burroughs, mm-hmm. who gave an endorsement of the campaign. And even the great Andy Warhol himself was aware of the project. So it really did make a big splash in art worlds. Yeah, Andy Warhol would have loved the sort of the the combination of the of the anarchy of it, along with this sort of very recognizable commercial symbol, right? It would be right. right also, up we've as, had yeah. it was it was a collaboration really with all the artists in Vancouver starting from the artists at Western Front and branching out everybody chipped in whether they were taking photos for a a, a brochure or or making videotapes everybody uh, took took part in the peanut campaign that was what was such a uh, positive thing about it was Andrew, we were Andrew, all working together. Andrew, the other thing I noticed about it too, and, and Vincent, you can talk about this as well, is that you managed to do something which is very common in politics afterwards, but I don't know how common it was then, but you kind of managed to steal the show, which is through a variety of very clever public appearances. You managed to sort of steal the thunder from other campaigns that were far more traditional and and boring. I mean, you had that advantage of coming from a world of performance. Yeah, you know, I think many of the artists back then were trying to point out the fact that politics was a performance, was which is a very interesting interpretation of the project. And, you know, there's a, there's a debate that happens at one point and Mr. Peanut's in the debate and he's there on television with the other candidates. <laughs> and, you know, it looks like he's just a silly peanut. But actually, John Mitchell, the campaign manager, was quite serious about his candidacy. And so maybe it was a little more than a performance. Maybe there was a really profound statement there. Yeah. And, and planters were never upset about it, were they? They never did. Uh, they never bothered me. I never bothered them. When you look Sorry. at now, when you when you fast forward forty eight years and the statements you were making back then, um, and Andrew, this is probably one of the reasons why the film resonates. Is do you feel like it? There's a reason to tell this story nearly fifty years later because it still makes sense to some extent. Yes, I think the project has relevance in a few interesting ways. One is the way we consume media. Actually, you know, back back in those days, video was fairly new, especially in the art world. And it would have been very difficult to get on television. It would have been very difficult to broadcast anything to a large group of people. We sometimes take that for granted now. Obviously, we're all broadcasting video every day. Back then, it was difficult. And I think that's one interesting thing about it. And then, uh, you know, we've just lived through an era in which a celebrity politician really shook up the political world. And that really felt like it was an absurd performance to a lot of people. And so I think I think it resonates for that reason as well. But I think there's a lot of reasons why it resonates. And to be honest, I think Mr. Peanut just has a longevity of his own that would would be interesting in any time. Yeah. Vincent, do you ever think of what it might have been like to to launch a project today when you had access to, you know, Twitter and TikTok and Facebook and all the different places you could have? It might have lost its impact if you'd had that many different avenues and that much noise to cut through. Good question. I'm not really... uh facile with with facebook and twitter and instagram i mean i i haven't given up uh, my mr peanut project in fact uh, i'm very busy uh, working on drawings drawings is my favorite uh, medium and i do uh, pen and uh, wash drawings of mr peanut in different uh, milieu whether it's uh, part of a Picasso painting or a 
Joseph Boyce in the cafe or an Indian First Nations totem or the pyramids in Egypt. Uh, there's there's countless ideas of, that I still want to work on with my drawings. Right. But as far as performance art, like all great performances, this was a one-off, right? Running for, running for mayor, you did it once, and then that you figured that was that. Yeah. Well, again, I was uh, Mr. Peanut in my costume for five years. So it was uh, five years in a nutshell, culminating with the performance for Mr. Peanut for mayor. But to Mr. Peanut for mayor was the swan song. That's right. Well, Vincent Chassoff and Andrew Muir, thank you so much for uh, for sharing a piece of history, a piece of um, Vancouver mayoralty history, of mayoralty election history. At least we have another one coming up this weekend, of course, so the timing is great. And uh, thank you both. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, the World University Rankings were released this week by Times Higher Education. This is a bit of a big deal. Uh, in my household, it's mainly so that my wife can prove, showed me once again that she went to a higher ranked school than I did, or graduated from a higher ranked university than I did. Um, but beyond that, this started off as something that was really for policymakers, so they could find out how their schools were doing, how they could make them better. Now it's become something that lots of people pay attention to. So the new ones are out this week for 2023. Uh, there are some very familiar names in the top ranks, such as Harvard, Cambridge, Oxford is number one, Stanford, MIT. Um, on the Canadian side, the University of Toronto is the top-ranked Canadian school at 18th. UBC is 40th. Uh, McGill, where I went to school, is 46th, dropping a little bit there. Um, but for a long time now, you know, North America, Europe, pretty much reigned supreme in that top 100. That's changing. Now, the way they do this is they rank 1,799 universities judged on five things, uh, teaching, research citations, international outlook, industry outcome, and so forth. Uh, but what we're really seeing is this sort of shift in the geopolitics of knowledge, and that shift is speeding up. The U.S.'s share of the world's top 100 is declining. East Asian nations led by China and universities in the Middle East are on the rise. And not only does that make a difference when it comes to a country's ability to develop its own talent, but also in its ability to attract the best and brightest from around the world. Uh, with more on that, joining me now is Phil Beatty. He's Chief Knowledge Officer with Times Higher Education, who put together the rankings. Thanks for your time. It's a pleasure. Thank you. So just for our listeners uh, to be aware, how do the rankings work? How do you determine uh, who ends up where? So it's a huge amount of, of effort, actually. We have 13 separate performance indicators, and we're looking at universities in the round. So we're looking at the teaching environment. We're looking at their international relations, their collaborations, their talent attraction uh, globally. We're looking at how they interact with with industry in terms of um, research funding. But the biggest part of the ranking is research excellence. We're actually um, analyzing uh, 15 and a half million research outputs from universities worldwide and, and 121 million citations to those research papers. So it's about how influential the research is. Is it pushing the boundaries of knowledge? Is it being disseminated and changing our understanding of of the world? So it's a very, very comprehensive exercise. Also, sorry, I should say, a survey of 40,000 scholars worldwide as well about reputation, you know, who they believe, peer-to-peer, expert-to-expert, which which schools they believe are doing uh, great work. So comprehensive. I mean, the top 10, the top five in particular are always familiar, Oxford, Harvard, Cambridge, Stanford, MIT. But you're seeing some shifts as well. I, I noticed that the, the rankings have become more global. We're seeing uh, new universities popping up from different parts of the world. It feels like a much more uh, global list than it had been perhaps uh, in, the, in, the, in the distant past. Absolutely, yeah. So we've been doing this for almost 20 years, uh, since 2004. And, you know, it's absolutely true. The U.S., uh, in particular, North America in general, and Western Europe are still very dominant. Um, but over time, you've seen a real shift of the balance of power. And, and I'm not suggesting that the US is still is, is somehow no longer dominant. It absolutely is. It has seven of the world top 10. It has a, a large proportion of the upper echelons of the universities. But we have seen this shift. And it's, it's, it's primarily, I think, East Asian nations uh, rising. So particularly China, um, it's, it's universities have had about three decades of investment, of focus, of attention, and they're really rising up the rankings, pushing into the top 100 zone. Actually, America has lost 
um, several universities from the top hundred over the, over recent years. And and, the, and China, mainland China, has gained. It's gone from about two a few years ago to seven uh, this year. If you include Hong Kong, there's another five in there. Um, and then the Middle East, uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, the United Arab Emirates, um, also to some extent uh, Egypt. They're really starting to make rapid gains from a smaller base, but some significant gains. So I call it a bit of a global leveling up. The, the knowledge economy, knowledge production, excellence in higher education is starting to feel a bit more evenly distributed. And, and I hope it's it's actually positive news for the world in terms of the diversity of ideas and, and you know, the way we tackle our shared our shared global problems through research excellence, you know, climate action, uh, future pandemics. Hopefully we'll get a, a more inclusive approach to all of that. One of the things I found really interesting, and, and you pointed this out, was the challenge of the pandemic, um, you know, the, the hardening of borders a little bit. And one of the interesting things about China is, you're, yeah, they're up from two uh, a while back now to seven in the top 100, uh, including a few in the top 20, which is new. But you also saw that that in some senses, Chinese universities were closing themselves off a little bit and that geopolitics was getting in the way somewhat of uh, of, of some of the more positive things that we've seen from China in these rankings. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, international collaboration is at the heart of, um, you know, the research endeavor. We we do have all these shared problems that we, we have to tackle as a global society and universities have been brilliant at crossing borders and, and bridging divides. But I, I do think there's starting to be a real cooling off period. So China has been rising rapidly in the rankings, but one indicator where it has started to slip is our international outlook metrics. That is, bringing in foreign academics, bringing in foreign students, but also collaborating across borders on research papers. Um, and obviously, there's a whole range of you know issues around um, security, mistrust. And I do think it's it's got the risk of having a real thawing effect and um, polarizing the world to some extent. So it's not dramatic just yet, but we are seeing it cooling off. And I do think the world may suffer from this because we end up keeping more secrets, we end up sharing less. And if you think about the, the pandemic, the, the most amazing response to the pandemic was universities and scientists over the world started sharing things very quickly, sharing their data, sharing their their their, their background uh, research, and it helped us develop collectively a rapid, um, successful vaccines. So there is a worry there that we might lose that global um, gain of, of knowledge accumulation and fall back into more, more polarized words where um, we, we lose out as a society because, um, as they always say, you know, if you, sh if you give somebody your money, you're, you're down on your money. But if you give someone your ideas and knowledge, you haven't lost anything yourself. But, but the cumulative gain is there for everyone. One of the uh, before we I wanted to talk specifically about Canada coming up, but one of the things I found interesting was in the overall rankings of excellence, uh, North America slipped to second this year be, behind our uh, behind the south behind uh, australia and new zealand yeah i mean it's a little bit um just because we've, we've we've gone for country averages and obviously the u.s is so dominant there's a higher number of u.s universities in there the the australian system is much more focused but per capita australia is an unbelievable success story you know they've got a, a much smaller number of universities in there but a very significant number at the very top of ranking. So they've got a concentration of excellence of quite a, a strong sector as a whole, whereas the US sector tends to be much more divided. There's the ultra elite, the super rich, the Harvards and the Stanfords, and you know to some extent the MITs, and then the great publics like Berkeley and uh, UCLA. But actually there's a bit more of a longer tail of, of less successful universities that have been constrained with defunding lack of uh, state support in terms of people valuing the great things universities do. So I think that's what we're seeing there, that Australia as a system, as a nation, is super strong. The US more divided, more polarized with, with that, that, that decline that we're seeing um, creeping in. Yeah, I've always been interested in the, how the rankings reflect how individual nations invest in education. Clearly, China's rise has a lot to do with just how much both public and uh, corporate investment there has been in R&D in that country. Uh, Australia, I believe, embarked on something quite similar not that long ago, uh, which is really up to their game, so to speak. Uh, and in America, R&D investment is down. So you're sort of seeing the, the fruits of that, or at least the, the impacts of that. Yeah, and certainly what, you know, you've looked at economies like China, and they've they've had to pivot into being, a you know, moving from manufacturing into knowledge and skills and technology. And you, you can see, you know, they've got a good rival to Silicon Valley. They've got the uh, the Greater Bay Area, Shenzhen, and next door to Hong Kong. You know, they've really pivoted to say we need a knowledge-driven economy, a, sk a skills and ideas and inventions-driven economy. You've seen that place like South Korea 
and it's been really successful and uh, you know it does send a message that um you know modern economies need highly skilled highly educated and very innovative um research driven uh, innovations and uh, you you neglect that at your peril it's a it's a real concern how overall did canadian universities do this year compared to years past I think it's been a really stable year for uh, Canada. Um, there's been some very modest downward movement at the top. So UBC has slipped three places, McGill's down two places, McMaster's down five. That is, you know, slightly concerning. Um, a, a modest fall, nothing to be too concerned about. Overall, I think Canada stays strong. Its its metrics over time are, are still really positive. But I think it's just a reflection of the fact that those very high ones of rankings, those those elite places are getting much more competitive, as, as you say, you know, with, with the likes of mainland China, Hong Kong, uh, East Asian nations making gains there. But overall, actually holding on pretty well and no cause for alarm, but certainly cause for reflection and uh, thinking around strategy. Yeah, no time to rest on one's laurels, I guess, is the message of this year's rankings. Yeah, absolutely. And and there is a, a sense with these rankings that, that they're a fantastic benchmark for, for the global knowledge economy. Um, but you do, they are a zero-sum game. You know, you have to run fast to stand still. So it's not always, even if you decline, it doesn't necessarily mean universities are getting worse. It just means that uh, other institutions, other nations might be accelerating more rapidly. So, you know, in an ideal world, a rising tide is lifting all the boats and it's good for everybody. Um, but in terms of the geopolitics of uh the innovation and knowledge economies, it, it's some, something to be aware of. I remember when I was based in China, I knew of your rankings. I mean, they haven't been around for a very long time, but I knew of them. I'd read them. Uh, I went to McGill. So obviously you, you pay attention to where your school wound up. Uh, but when I lived in China, I, you know, the rankings took on a whole other dimension because these were poured over with a fine tooth comb by students looking to study abroad, especially the best and the brightest. They were very serious about where the school rankings wound up. I imagine in the highly competitive uh, race to attract the best and brightest from around the world, that these rankings have a real impact. Do you have an idea of just how much of an impact they have? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and interestingly, we we developed the rankings twenty years ago as a, as a university tool, you know, a tool for university managers, for academics, for governments to understand, you know, higher education policy, research policy. But once they were built back in two thousand and four five students came flocking in that in in that 20 year period the the number of internationally mobile students has exploded i think we're at about five million students now who are studying outside their home country it's been on a, a steep upward curve and what we saw is we we were a, a publication for quite um serious academics and academic leaders and then students in their millions were coming to our website and having a look at the rankings and i think you know the last count directly into our website it's about 20 million students looking to see where they might study um so and that's just on our site there's obviously huge amounts of media coverage and other other sites carry this so they they are very influential in helping determine uh, where students study i guess if you're a student from an emerging economy um you know from a you know the burgeoning wealth of emerging economies the rising middle classes of of, of emerging economies and the capacity challenges at home it has meant Students traditionally look to the U.S. Or, or, or Canada or to Western Europe. Um, but I think what's starting to happen now is that um, students have more choice because of this leveling up we talk about, because of the rise of East Asian universities. There's more uh, into Asia uh, student mobility. More students are thinking, well, we don't have to go to North America. We don't have to go west to, to Europe. We, we, we've got more choice at home, more capacity at home. So I think, you know, the, the, we're talking about um, American universities declining, but they could be of a vicious circle here as they also lose student talent and lose those, stu lose those students who perform extremely well and or maybe go on to postgraduate and research careers and drive the uh, the US success stories. And so many of the Nobel Prizes in America, for example, have been you know immigrants who came through the higher education route. So there is a worry of, of a vicious circle. Yeah, it certainly is competitive. One of the things that was interesting about the rankings, too, is just the rise of, of, of African universities to see Nigerian universities on the list to see that growth as well, because uh, that would live outside of, of, of these sort of, you know, the, the former elite universities. But to see sort of rises in capacity and talent in those areas where you know uh, that there's a huge amount of, of intellectual uh, uh, capacity and a huge amount of uh, promise, but that the universities are now catching up and offering the, the kind of uh, curriculum and education that uh, that will allow those countries to thrive. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a, you know, there's a mass 
massive, massive um, demographic challenge in Africa. You know, they've got a you know, multi-billion youth population. So there was a huge issue about building capacity and, and being able to provide for uh, the, the young people and give them the education skills. So a lot of African nations are, are, are absolutely realizing they need to invest in higher education. Um, and I think what's what's interesting is they've embraced rankings. I think for, for, for several years, there might have been a sense of saying, well, we don't need to worry about competing with Harvard and Stanford or Oxford and Cambridge. We've got our own challenges. But I think there's that growing maturity, that growing confidence to say, well, you know, how, how are we going to arrest brain drain? How are we going to make sure we're, we're not just constantly on the sort of uh, the unequal end of partnerships and collaborations and we lose all of our talent if we don't build capacity? There's still a massive problem of resource and inequality of wealth. But it's great to see African nations uh, investing on higher ed and embracing these sorts of global benchmarks, the ranking system, so that they, they can compare themselves to the best in the world or they can try as hard as they can to to compete with the best in the world. And actually, sometimes with these rankings, they support collaboration as well because they give the visibility that universities want to, to you know find and pick out strategic partners. Running to stand still, it's an interesting way of putting the rankings, but clearly uh, it applies well this year with so much movement and so many uh, new countries watching their schools climb up the list. Uh, Phil Beatty, thank you so much for your time. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Let's talk now about uh, the ongoing protests that are happening in Iran. I don't know how closely you've been following it, but they continue these mass protests right across the country. What's been perhaps most um, eye-catching about them is not just the endurance and the amount of people taking place, of course, women at the forefront, uh, but how many young people, kids, high school students, middle school students have been out demanding change here. There feels like there's something uh, different happening in Iran when we've seen, we've seen protests, obviously, all around the world. But this one certainly has uh, has caught a lot of attention over the past week since it began. Federal Justice Minister in this country, David Lametti, says Ottawa will not list Iran's Revolutionary Guard as a terrorist group because that would punish people who are reluctantly drafted into the organization. Pressure has been mounting on the Liberals to fulfill a 2018 motion that MPs passed to list the group as a terrorist organization. You'll know, of course, they were responsible for the downing of Ukrainian International Airlines Flight 752, uh, a thousand days ago now, many Canadians died on that. Many Canadian citizens and permanent residents uh, of Iran died on that uh, on that plane. Now, Lametti says Canada instead is banning entry for senior members of the group. The path we have chosen is better, better at targeting the Iranian regime and better at keeping Canadians safe. We are targeting the most reprehensible members of the IRGC and the Iranian regime. The government says tens of thousands of people will be inadmissible to this country within weeks. Public Safety Minister, meanwhile, Marco Mendocino, says Ottawa will launch a tip line for people to report members of Iran's regime going about their business in Canada. Iranian-Canadian groups have argued that Canada has become a haven for people who have who are connected to human rights abuses in Iran. It comes again as those protests continue following the death last month of 22-year-old Masa Amini, arrested by the so-called morality police in Tehran for allegedly violating Iran's strict rules requiring women to cover their hair with a hijab or headscarf. The first protest took place after Ms. Amini's funeral. They then continued. Women and girls have been conspicuous on the front lines, braving repeated crackdowns by security services. Iran's president accusing the United States of engineering the nationwide anti-government protests. Ibrahim Raisi calling it the U.S.'s, quote, failed policy of destabilization. That is evidence of Iran's defiant popular protest only grows, breaking through the regime's internet blackouts. Social media video posts appear to show the increasing involvement of middle school students, girls and boys. Human rights groups alarmed by Iran's admission these young students are being sent to, quote, psychological centers to be, quote, reformed. Jordana Miller, ABC News, Jerusalem. Well, joining us more with more on this now is Elnaz Sarbar. She's a women's rights activist. Uh, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thanks for having me, Ben. So tell me, I mean, it, for, for those of us who, who sort of watch it go by in the news or watch it go by in newspapers or on social media, it's sometimes hard to figure out just how widespread it is. But this has become a mass movement. It is, it is. And you had a great summary there mentioning the girls, uh, middle school and high school coming 
out in the streets, joining the students, joining the women, and joining everybody else who was in the street. And it's, you know, Iran is on fire in a sense. Um, and in, in that, I want to give you a quick update. Today, we had the security forces uh, going to a school, um, Shahid School in Ardabil, in northwest of Iran, and basically beating some girls, arresting some girls. These are children that they are arresting. And uh, unfortunately, 10 were hospitalized, and out of 10, one has actually died today. So we are seeing people killed like Mahsa Amini again in the hands of security forces to prove that they didn't kill her. Yeah, I mean, I, I saw, of course, the stories about Nika um, Shakarami and Sarina Esmalazadeh. Mm-hmm. Uh, other people, I mean, there have become other faces of this protest since uh, the death of Masa Amini as well, unfortunately. Yes, um, the human, the Iran Human Rights actually reported about 200 people have been killed, including 23 children. I guess with that uh, young woman who died today, that would be 24. But um, it's what the government is doing a very brutal crackdown on everybody. And they, it, is, it is so sad to see them attacking children in this way, which are in the yeah. front line of this. Because, uh, you know, as you mentioned, this is something that Iranian women de- de- um, deal with every day. You put on a scarf since you're seven years old. So you starting seven, seven years old, you deal with that every day. And it's, um, it's easy to see the discrimination if you're paying attention. And, and I, I'm not surprised that these young uh, girls or women are in the front line of it because they are dealing with it every day. Elnaz, perhaps you could you could shed light on this because I think sometimes it's hard for people outside of Iran to understand, you know, the ethnic differences, the linguistic differences, the geographical differences within the country. Uh, but mm-hmm. we're seeing groups from all over the country rising up, and and uh, what, what do you think is motivating high school students, middle school students? That's not something you often see. Whether it was the Arab Spring, I mean, there was a lot of young people involved. There are a lot of young people in many of these countries, but uh, it's not often that you see people that young. Um, rise up yeah. against, especially against a regime that can be that brutal. Yeah, they are a brave new generation, but I think they they really feel this. Like, I mean, you know, I've I've lived out of Iran at this point for 14 years, but this is something I wanted to change in my life too. When I was going to school, I hate wearing a scarf, and I've seen videos of like seven year olds that taking off their scarf. I was like, I look ugly in this. I don't want to wear this every day. So this is um, something every Iranian woman, every Iranian girl experience every day. You know, when you go to school, there is a person at school whose job, whose responsibility is to check the, the girl's clothing and make sure it is proper according to Sharia laws. And if it's not proper, you're not allowed in the school. So you can get an education basically without it. And these girls have to deal with that and have to see that every day. And um, of course, they are fed up with it. And um, I mean, um, I, I totally understand them because I felt the same way when I was at their age, too, except I was not as brave as they are. And, and honestly, I'm amazed by their bravery, by the way they stand in front of security forces and say, this is what I want. This is my choice. And I'm willing to die for it and, and get rid of this regime. How is it being, is it just spontaneous? How is this all being organized? I realized that in that report, we were talking a bit about how groups have managed to sort of get around any uh, online crackdown that's happening, or at least a, a social media crackdown. Mm-hmm. How is this, how is this happening in so many spots in the country all at once? Yeah. So, you know, there is something interesting about Iran. We have people in Iran have to deal with filtering every day. Like I can tell you, even the taxi drivers know how to use VPNs because the navigation app was filtered. So so they know how to use VPNs and all the, you know, almost everybody in the country, I would say definitely the new generation, definitely the middle generation knows how to go around uh, filtering. Um, that being said, uh, Instagram and WhatsApp were not filtered in Iran until about three weeks ago, until basically this protest. So people were using them a lot, and, and they were on social media media a lot. TikTok is popular. Um, so 
they use social media to talk about this, even though they can't talk about this publicly. And I think a lot of the organization um, happens um, inside social media. And then you have this little spot, like, you know, you know, this things that happen in school, people are at the same place in the school and they're like, okay, today we don't want to go to class. We're just going to leave the school and go uh, to the pro- protest. Um, so I would say that was being a key point for these people to communicate with each other um, and at the same time see what's happening on the other side of, you know, Iran, what's happening in Saqqas, what's happening in Baluchistan, in Ardabil, in other places. Now they can get, get to see the videos of, of what's happening in other cities, and that could be encouraging because you know you're not alone in this request, in this quest, yeah, basically. You must know this living in North America that often when people use the term Iran here, we picture Iran, Iranians, and that's it. We don't differentiate between all the different groups that live in this very large country. Yeah. And and I think we're seeing a lot. Of the, the protests have spread to Kurdish areas. You mentioned, of course, the border of Pakistan with Balochistan mm-hmm. um, and other areas. Mm-hmm. I mean, this has really been widespread with lots of different groups taking part. Yeah. Actually, the protest started from Kurdistan because mm-hmm. Mahsa Amini was from Saqqaz, which is in Kurdistan. And the first day after the funeral, the people who came to the street are Kurdish people, and they are brave people, and their men support their women strongly. So, they the first, um, I think one of the one of the chants you have heard a lot is is uh, is when is uh, woman um, um, life liberty, then then they get azadi. The first version of this. Um, chant was actually in, in, in Kurdish. It was Jen Jian Azadi, which, you know, right. you still can hear it. And that's how it got started. And then it started from, spread from Kurdistan to the rest of Iran, over the hundred cities that were protesting. Uh, Eldaz, I, I guess the, the question now is, what happens next? Uh, because we've seen protests, nothing like this quite in the in the past, and uh, they occasionally lose momentum. But where do you think this one is headed? It must the regime must be terrified of this one. Oh, they are. They are terrified, and you know it's hard to predict a revolution. But I know the Iranians are are decided to to take down this government, and they are going to do their hardest, the damn hardest they can to stop it. I mean, they already shut down internet to. Um, stop the world from seeing the ugly images happening there, and 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 today attacking a school is a desperate act. Um, so, is is do you think there's a compromise? It's probably going to get worse before it gets better, yeah. but we're hoping that's going to get better. And I'm hoping that um, the the Western countries, the European countries, do not help Islamic Republic survive. I know that. They were trying to negotiate on, on getting um, a deal with U.S. and trying to get some of their assets unfrozen. But we are sure that if they receive any money, it's going to be used against the Iranian people. So I'm hoping that that kind of negotiations and dealing with I- Iran will be on hold. Um, at the same time, we also know that um, this is, I think, day three or four of the strike by the oil refinery workers. This could mm-hmm. also be another turning point for the um, for the revolution, um, and it could it could it could help the Iranian people um, to get where they want to go. Do you see there be? I guess there's. It's hard to negotiate if there's no. I mean, there's no leadership to the protests, really, right? There's no one for the regime to sit down with and talk to about what could be, uh, what demands could be met. Uh, we've seen this happen elsewhere. Um, but do you think there is any chance for compromise here? Any chance for um, the Iranian regime, specifically on 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 the Ayatollah side, to um, to loosen rules a little bit to at least acknowledge what happened uh, back in September to Masa Amini? Um, I don't think so. They did an investigation and said there was no wrongdoing on their side. And mm-hmm. and honestly, at this point, the demand on the streets are down from the downfall of the Islamic Republic itself. itself. Um, the chants are death to dictatorship, death to Khamenei, the supreme leader uh, himself. And, you know, and I wanted, I, they, they have pushed up this narrative that this is the work of um, U.S., but one of the chants that I want to share with, with your listeners is that mm-hmm. people saying our enemy is here, and it's a lie that they say it's America. So people are very aware that 
as long as this regime is in place, they're not going to get what they want because for 43 years, people have tried to reform the country in that sense. And now they're, they're dealing with somebody who has absolute power um, over everything. And that absolute power has, has brought corruption, has brought poverty, has brought mismanagement over uh, Iran's um, environmental um, resources, including water. Water. There are cities in Iran that have serious water problems. There is a lake in north uh, west of Iran, Lake Urumia, which is dried up. Um, and there's oppression of ethnic and religious minorities. So all of these needs to be fixed. It's not just like morality police only at this point or just some rules about hijab. Now all these issues are on the table. And I think this is why Iranian people are so fed up, fed up with this regime and they want it 100% gone. Yeah, which will no doubt be difficult considering how entrenched uh, the regime is. But but yeah, no, the, the playbook is the same, right? I mean, every time something rises up, it's the fault of outside influences. It's the fault of, I mean, we see the Russians do the same yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. You know, it's always, it's Israel's fault. It's it's the, the Americans' fault, you know. What's interesting I find about this one, though, is the generational shift. It feels like there's mm-hmm. something happening in Iran, which is purely generational and that mm-hmm. it's going to be something very hard for this particular regime, especially on the religious side, for them to understand yeah. and quell because it's happening around them and they can't see and what's they're happening. they're very old. Like, have you looked at their pictures? They're all like 70, yeah. 80, 90-year-old men that are like, yeah. you know, so rigid in, in what they want. Um, so, like, yeah. Yeah. So a last question. I, I have about a minute and a half left. Just for you, it must be hard to be both. Both. To, to, I guess you're working from where you are, trying to help out. Yes, and I have a 20 year old daughter, a 20 day old daughter. Sorry. Oh wow. <laughs> I have a yeah, 20 day old daughter, and she was she was born with the revolution. So, and 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 my, you know, I'm just trying to take care of her and like try my best to. Be the voice of Iranian people. Uh, I work with uh, with Masih Ali Nizad, Iranian journalist, who gets a lot of videos from inside Iran, and I, you know, I help her to put all these out in the world to to see what's happening really inside Iran and understand fully what is going on. Well. Um... Elnaz, thank you so much. Congratulations on your daughter to you and your family. That's wonderful. Uh, I hope she gets to see a different Iran one day. Thank you so much. I, I hope so. And I think she will. <laughs> Elnaz Sarbar, thank you so much. Have a great night. Thanks for having me. Good night. Good night.